Welcome to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Adam Barrier, and today I'm talking with John Morton, or Morty, as he's known to his friends. With the Winter Olympic Games starting tomorrow in Beijing, I wanted to have Morty on our show as a guest because he's had many decades of experience at the Olympics. First as an athlete at two Olympics, where he was competing in biathlon, and then as a coach and a team leader at several more. He's also a trail builder who's designed and consulted on projects around the United States and around the world. And he's an author who's just published several books about his experiences as an athlete, a coach, a team leader, and an outdoorsman. His most recent book is called Celebrate Winter. John Morton, welcome to Outdoor Explorer. Hey, Adam, thanks very much for having me. So, uh, Morty, uh, when I mentioned to some local people recently that you were scheduled to be on, the, on this show as a guest, they told me they were really excited to hear from you again because you used to live here uh, in Alaska back in the 1970s when you were stationed at, at Fort Richardson Ar Army Base. So maybe we could start there. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Alaska? Because you didn't grow up here. No, that's correct. Uh, actually, I went to, uh, I grew up in Southern New Hampshire. Uh, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont and at the time they had compulsory ROTC or Re Reserve Officer Training Corps for the first two years. And um, when I was uh, uh, a sophomore, you're facing the decision of whether to stay in ROTC or to get out. It was 1966, the Vietnam War was definitely uh, building and many of us um, who were in college at the time and, and had been in ROTC, pretty much assumed we were going to end up going there one way or another. And at the time we thought, well, we'd have more options perhaps if we, if we stayed in ROTC and went as an officer. And um, then not too long after that, I, I uh, discovered um, that there were these um, athletes at, at one of the races that, that we attended, just a, a sort of an, a random Eastern uh, Nordic race. And they had USA on their jackets, but I didn't recognize any of them. And I knew everybody on the US cross country team. And I learned that these were members of the US biathlon team. And I, I didn't even know what biathlon was, but I quickly learned that the army was supporting a training center at Fort Richardson, just outside of Anchorage. And that if you were a capable cross country ski racer um, in, in college, there was a reasonably good chance you could get an assignment to the training center, which ultimately happened for me. I was able to get assigned. I graduated uh, from college in the spring of 68. And by November of 68, I was uh, at the training center. And I made, made the trip uh, to Europe that first winter I was up there, which was uh, you know, exciting and, and um, you know, stimulating. Uh, for me to be able to race in Europe. Um, and then uh, I, I had a four year active duty obligation, which I thought uh, this is perfect because this will take me right through the 72 Olympics in Sapporo. So you, um, you were one of the top racers in the, in the United States in college. At Middlebury, you were the Eastern region champion and uh, you were at NCAA as one of the were you already on the U.S. ski team in, in, when you got into biathlon, or how did it work yeah. back then? Yeah, I was on the B team. They had a, an A team and a B team, and uh, it was uh, at the time when uh, Bill Koch and Tim Caldwell and Ronnie Yeager, Bob Gray, 
uh, Mike Elliott. Uh, th there was a strong uh, cross-country ski team. And uh, so I was, I was on the B team and we went to the training camps together. Um, but then when I um, went on active duty, uh, at the time, the, the U.S. ski team was funded and supported um, a lot better than the, the biathlon team, aside from the training center. The, the training center at, at Fort Rich was basically one of a kind. Um, and at the time, you know, there was a lot of um, issue about professionalism. And in fact, at the Sapporo Olympic Games, uh, the president of the International Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, sent one of the top Austrian alpine skiers home because of some sort of um, professionalism issue. His name was Karl Schranz. And he, he maybe had some sort of an endorsement or something. And they were very strict about professionalism. But ironically, at that time, most of the Europeans and certainly all of the communist bloc countries their athletes were part of the military or the board of guards or postal service or customs or, so they were all basically being paid to train. And uh, there were two small groups in the US Army that had a similar situation, the Biathlon Training Center at, in, at Fort Rich. And then they had a training center for modern pentathlon at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. Okay. And where did you ski at, at Fort Rich? Uh, were you skiing uh, up on the road up toward Arctic Valley someplace uh, at that biathlon range or were you yeah. training? Okay, so that's where it was most. Yeah, that's correct. Happened. Yeah, and in fact, it, it, was, um, it, it was a good training center. It was a good facility. Um, we had, I, I think we probably had at least five kilometers of, of uh, ski trail and uh, grooming equipment. We didn't have a uh, big piston bully or anything like that, but um, I think snow machine with a track setter. And uh, our coach at the time was uh, a Swedish immigrant named Sven Johansson, who, you know, has, I think he was one of the first uh, inductees into the Alaska um, Ski Hall of Fame. And um, he was a remarkable individual. He was very, uh, very, very accomplished athlete himself. And um, um, he knew he knew what it took to um, to compete at a high level internationally. And so, how did Sven become the coach of the military uh, biathlon unit at, at Fort Richardson as an immigrant? I mean, was he was he in? Yeah, the, he was he was in the military, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I don't. I'm not sure he ever was in the. He was a civilian uh, when he was coaching the biathletes at Fort Richardson. Um, I think he had been a member or had tried out for um, maybe the 1960 Olympic team, but um, maybe his citizenship hadn't come through. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not really sure of the details, but he, my understanding is at one time in his, in his youth in Sweden, he held national championships in four different sports at the same time <laughs> in Sweden. I think, you know, biathlon, he was also a speed skater and he was a bike racer. And uh, I forget what the fourth one was. Oh, he, he he was supposed to be a rabbit. His his brother was a very talented track runner. And uh, his brother was gonna try to set a national record in the 1500 meters or something. 
and um, Sven was going to be a rabbit and and run the first you know two laps and then just peel off. And uh, the story goes that he he ran the first two laps and he was feeling pretty good and he he could see that his brother was struggling and he says ah oh, what the hell I'll give it a try and he yeah. said that and his brother wouldn't talk to him for a long time. <laughs> Well, so he eventually found his way uh, to Fort Richardson and, and uh, was the coach of that program. Did you have a, did you mix a lot with, you know, I, I just, a few weeks ago, I was speaking with Tom Corbin, whom I think, you know, because he told me he was yeah. uh, pretty excited to hear your show when I told him yeah. that you were going to be on the, on the show. And uh, we were talking about the, the construction of the trails at Hillside, which started in 1971 and over at Kincaid Park. Also things were starting out in around 1971, more or less with, uh, the Mises and the Burkholders and the Mahaffeys and, and that whole group um, yes. that was involved in those, the Richters. And, and, but you were at Fort Rich, were you also skiing a lot in town? Was there a lot of mix, mixing with those other groups or were you kind of sequestered over there at Fort Rich? No, we, uh, uh, Sven felt it was important for us to be a part of the Nordic community. And I, I vividly remember him bring us, bringing us into one of the Anchorage Nordic Ski Club's um, potluck dinners early in the season, and I'd never seen such a a spread of of food. You know, salmon the the size of which I had never seen before in my life, and uh, caribou and moose, and it was it was remarkable. This um, uh, this potluck supper that the ski club sponsored, and then um, many of us. Uh, would would help out with some of the junior programs, uh, you know, with volunteer coaching, uh, and we spent uh, quite a quite a bit of time at Russian Jack. At the time, the the major um, Nordic Trail system was at Russian Jack Springs, and I as I, as I recall, they had a Tuesday night series or something. So we would uh, go there every Tuesday night and went that we were around or we're in town and. Uh, participate in that and uh, so yeah we felt I think that um, we were pretty well connected with the Nordic community. Hmm. So and you were here at Fort Rich for about four years from about 68 to 72 and then you made the 72 Olympic team but I think you had just come back from Vietnam just prior to the Olympics and had uh, what just two or three months in which to prepare. I, yeah. You weren't skiing much in Vietnam I guess. No no in fact I, I tried to a couple of times, my first half of my tour, I was a, a mobile advisory team leader down in the Mekong Delta. And then I was uh, selected as an instructor at the advisor school, which was just north of, of Saigon in a village called Zeon. And that that was a better situation for me because there was a uh, it was a compound that, that was surrounded by, a, you know, wire by a fence and you could run. There was some, at least a place you could run and be, you know, reasonably secure, but it was, you know, stiflingly hot. You, you'd run three miles and it would feel like you'd run a marathon. <laughs> and uh, so that the training was uh, marginal at best, but I, I was fortunate in that I was able to get back to Fort Rich, which was not a guarantee. I mean, one of the things I'll tell you when you're when you're in the military is the needs of the service come first. And so I was fortunate to get back to Anchorage. And then I was um, equally as fortunate to, to make the team for Sapporo. 
uh, and but just disappointed that um, there were six of us that made the team and there were four slots uh, for um, to race in each of two events. There was a in, at the, in those days, there was a 20 kilometer individual event and a, a four man relay. The women weren't um, included in, in the biathlon events at the Olympics until Alberville in um, 92. And uh, so, and now, you know, it's, it's uh, gratifying to see that I think if I'm not mistaken um, in Beijing, they'll probably have more than a dozen biathlon races, including oh. the, both the men and the women. And even I think a mixed relay or perhaps a couple of mixed relays. Yeah, well, biathlon is getting so popular. I think in it Europe, is. it's one of the most popular sports, uh, much more so I think than cross country skiing, which maybe 20 or 30 years ago might've been the more popular of the two sports. Uh, but now that's certainly been surpassed by biathlon. I think the shooting creates an element of suspense uh, that that fans really can uh, can really relate to and can really understand. Um, You're absolutely right, and I think what the um, what has happened for biathlon is that that um, early on there there were some technologically savvy people involved in the television coverage so that they could um, isolate the targets in a way so that that people watching TV could actually see. Um, in real time, how the shooting was going. And, and that, of course, is one of the most exciting aspects of the sport because the lead can change so dramatically and so, so frequently. The athletes all acknowledge that they can be first one day and be on the third page of the results the next day. Yeah. <laughs> just the nature of the sport. Well, you were mentioning just now that uh, you, had, you can only enter four people per race back then. And that's yep. still the case. I believe that, uh, at least in cross-country skiing, you only get four athletes per event. But our current uh, team that's going over uh, to Beijing, of which we have a bunch of Alaskans on that team, we have six women and eight men, I believe, on the team. No, 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 no. Eight women and I think six men. And mm -hmm. But there are only four people who can race uh, in each race. And so every, there's no guarantee just being on the Olympic team that you'll actually get to race. No, it, it, that's exactly right. And, and what a lot of people um, perhaps don't understand or, or find it difficult to uh, acknowledge or recognize is at that level, you know, a lot of people will say, well, at least you made the team. It's a wonderful thing that you were able to make the team. But I think most of the athletes will tell you that they're constantly adjusting their, their goals and their objectives. And at one point, if you're racing in college, you know, maybe your objective is to make the NCAA team so that you can at least race in the NCAA championships. But just as soon as, as that becomes a, um, an accomplishment, then you want to you wanna be on the podium. You know, it, it's not enough just to participate anymore. <laughs> and it's the same internationally. It's great to make the US ski team great to be a member of the team, be able to wear the USA jacket um, in a foreign country. That's a wonderful thrill. But it's not long before you say, you know, I, I don't want to be on the last page of the results. Uh, I want to I want to do my best when it really counts. And uh, but having said that, there's a tremendous value 
to those athletes that have made the team that get to go to the Olympics, that experience the, the level of excitement and stress. Um, and they, they're just, then they understand, then they have a much better sense um, of what's expected and, and how to deal with it. I mean, yeah. it's a very, very challenging environment. It is very stressful. And, and I think that sometimes it may take 20 or 30 years uh, afterwards to sort of put things in perspective and recognize uh, the value of just having been there and, uh, uh, and, and what an accomplished, accomplishment it is just to be there and sort of appreciate it for what it was. But certainly during the, uh, during, during the two weeks of the Olympics, it's very stressful. And to not get to race uh, feels like a complete failure when naturally it's not a complete failure empirically, but, uh, but to some extent it is a failure. I mean, you go there to, to, uh, to race your best. And so if you don't even get to race at all, well, that's by definition, I guess that's a failure. <laughs> so, yeah, except for the fact, as, as you know, there are so many other factors involved. There's so many things that you have no control over. I mean, you may have done everything right in terms of training and um, tryout races and qualification, everything right. And you get over there and, and you, you just, you think about it, you've got athletes coming from all over the world, bringing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say germs, but, and hopefully they're not bringing this COVID, but it's just natural that you get to a, a, a place where you've got so many different co competitors and coaches and media people and coming from all over the world that, you're going to have people that get sick. And that always happens. I, I remember thinking, you know, we spend all this money on sports medicine and kinesiology and physiology and trying to determine exactly what um, angle, you know, your, your knee should be to get the maximum drive forward and all that. I think, you know, if we spent that money just trying to cure the common cold, that we would have more success in the Olympics than we've ever had before, because there's so many athletes that train their hearts out for four years, get to the games and, and get the, get some stomach bug or, yeah. or the cold, or cold or, you know, chest cold. Yeah. Just, it's inevitable. Well, I, I'm a, uh, I'm a volunteer assistant coach with the UAA ski team. And I frequently can be heard saying, uh, You've done all this training. Now don't slip and fall down on this in this icy parking lot because there goes your whole season. No, sometimes exactly. it's the simple stuff. Exactly right. But, well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outdoor Explorer. And today I'm talking with John Morton, who's an Olympic biathlete, a coach, a trail builder, and an author whose most recent book is called Celebrate Winter. My name's Adam Barrier, and we'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back. This is Outdoor Explorer and I'm your host, Adam Barrier. Today I'm speaking with John Morton. And uh, John, we were talking a little bit about your time here in, in Alaska, that the fact that you had moved up here to, uh, in, the, in the military at, at Fort Richardson after, right after college, you just finished uh, college in Middlebury. Um, but after getting out of uh, the military at Fort Richardson, 
I understand you became the ski coach. You were the ski coach at Diamond High School. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. And uh, I had the good fortune, and I'm all, I'll always feel very, very grateful to Dick Mize because uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do after I got out of the military. And um, I had thought about teaching and coaching, but but I didn't have uh, I didn't even have the foresight to uh, you know apply for any jobs. And but to be fair, I didn't have a teaching certificate either at that time. So, uh, but um, Dick called me up um, actually even before I got out of the military, and he said, "Would you be interested in teaching and coaching at Diamond?" And he told me a little about it, and I said, "Absolutely." And he said, "Well, you know, you have to." take some courses at uh, UAA to get your teaching certificate and we'll set you up to uh, do your practice teaching uh, next fall. I, I got out of the military um, early in the summer. So spent the summer at UAA and um, was in the classroom with uh, Lynn Romago, who was a long time uh, cross country running coach and ski coach at Diamond had remarkable success for for decades. And uh, so I, he was a wonderful mentor and both in the classroom and, and uh, as in coaching. And eventually when, when I got my certificate and uh, Dick said, well, I'm going to, uh, you're going to be teaching seventh and eighth grade English and uh, assistant coach with Lynn for uh, cross country running and you'll be the head ski coach. And that, that was, it was terrific. I, 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 to be honest, I didn't know how good I had it until I had a number of other jobs later on. Dick Mize was just a remarkable administrator. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, as I mentioned earlier, I was speaking with Tom Corbin earlier and he said the same thing and he yeah. ended up at service, I think, uh, yeah. kind of through the same the same protocol. I got a phone call from Dick Mize and next thing he knew he was, uh, he was up at service. So yeah. <laughs> that seems, yeah. seems like Dick Mize got a lot of people into, uh, uh, into developing this, the ski programs that we have around here, because I mean, you know, Anchorage is, uh, you know, I think you enjoyed living here when you were, when you were oh. here, you had told me earlier and, and uh, you know, we, we've, we've turned into this place that now that is uh, it's a wonderful destination for cross country skiing and we're turning out cross country skiers left and right. Um, you bet. You bet. And I, I've had the chance to travel a bit um, since then, either with uh, different biathlon projects or, or um, you know, other ways. And I always, Anchorage is always the standard by which I evaluate, you know, any, anywhere else I am. Uh, because I, and, and I, I ended up leaving in the summer of uh, 78. To, to take over as um, head coach of men's skiing at Dartmouth. And I really was um, on the fence about whether to leave Anchorage or not. We had built a house up in the hillside in Rabbit Creek and, and I loved it. I loved Anchorage. I loved uh, teaching and coaching. I really enjoyed working for Dick Mize. Um, but we, my wife and I both had family back East and uh, I, I you know, it just, we actually leased the house for a year because we weren't sure we wanted to stay back East. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I have really fond memories of my uh, 10 years in Anchorage. Well, I, uh, to, to change gears here a little bit, um, I just recently read your book, Celebrate Winter, 
the subtitle is An Olympian's Stories of a Life in Nordic Skiing. And there were a couple of things that that's this this is a, a book of short stories uh, uh, focused on your experiences uh, in skiing, both from growing up in the in the backyard, going off jumps uh, when you were a kid growing up in New Hampshire, uh, all the way through the Olympic Games as a team leader and course designer and and uh, and everything else you've been involved with. You've been in two Olympics yourself as an athlete, and then you were a team leader for a three more Olympics, I believe. That's uh, correct. And and you had you were involved in a total of seven Olympics in an official capacity. Uh, but uh, if my if my math is right, you've been involved in ten Olympics, seven as a participant, and three more as a spectator. Uh, that's correct. Clearly, the the Olympics is something that's been a big part of your life, uh, not, not only your work life and athletic life, but uh, it's, it's obviously an interest uh, to you. What do you think makes, we've got the Olympics coming up next week in, in Beijing. What do you think makes the Olympics such a special event and such a, a thing that, that draws you to it? You know, I think for me, um, there's a certain uh, idealism about it that, that uh, you know the different nations of the world send their their athletes to to a location to compete against each other and you know in in uh, and they always make it clear that um, it's with with an eye toward uh, sportsmanship and and uh, you know high character and and we know we all recognize that through the years there there have been lapses or there have been uh, you know failings in in certain areas but still it's one of the few times that uh, people from all over the world can get together and share the excitement of of uh, great sports performances and uh, you see um, it's an interesting for me it's always been an interesting uh, dynamic that there's there's certainly a strong sense of nationalism. I mean, the athletes are proud to represent their countries. They're proud to wear the the colors of their countries or march into the uh, opening ceremony behind their flag. But there's also this uh, sort of international sense. Um, I remember I was team leader at at Lillehammer, and uh, I. Uh, one time I, I had lunch in a cafeteria that was intended for, for the volunteers, all the Nor Nor Norwegian volunteers, but it was conveniently located to the biathlon stadium. And they didn't mind if I, you know, I used, I had my credentials and I just went in and got lunch. And one of the Norwegian volunteers came over and sat down with me. And eventually he said, do you think that the world is, um, uh, you know, looking down on us because we're so so successful as as the host country, and I said, no, not at all. I think I think you're showing everyone else how to do it. You're showing how to host a good Olympics, and certainly you've you've trained your athletes well. And you know this uh, one of their their speed skaters, um, uh, Johan Olaf Koss. Um, they, they got some sort of a, um, a financial bonus for winning a gold medal or, or uh, setting a world record or an Olympic record. He immediately 
publicized that he was giving his his Olympic bonus to this uh, um, charity that was trying to provide aid to um, you know the war torn country of Eritrea at the time, and and just because of of that public um, display of generosity before the end of the Lillehammer Olympics, uh, there was more than a, a million dollars donated to that, um, that fund to benefit uh, the people of Eritrea. And, you know, then I, I, I remember this, this person at, at the end of our, our lunch together, he said, well, he said, in the 50 kilometer, we'll all be rooting for Smirnov because he deserves to win. He's never won an Olympic medal, even though he's been World Cup champion a number of times, and he deserves to win. And I mean, this is from you know, a Norwegian volunteer. And yeah. ultimately, Smirnov did win the 50. Yeah, and that was one of the greatest. Uh, uh, I mean, there was a lot of there were a lot of good feelings in the on the ski trails that day when he won it. Uh, you bet. Yeah. You bet. That that brings to mind some other stories. Uh, your book is a is a is a mix. It's a it's a uh, a compilation of a, of a bunch of short stories. And one of the things that you come back to several times in the book is your friendship with Alexander Tikhonov, uh, who was uh, this is of course when you were in the Olympics uh, and most of the Olympics that you've well maybe not most but at least half of the Olympics that you've been involved with have been during the Cold War era, and. Right. Uh, you were in the U.S. military. Uh, Alexander Tikhonov was a Soviet guy and uh, and one of the bi best biathletes in the world. Uh, but you formed a, a a relationship with him, a friendship with him uh, that I think endured for several decades. You've known him for a long time, and I, I suppose that the Olympics is something that that also fosters maybe that type of understanding. Perhaps the, that's the ideal behind the Olympics. You're absolutely right, and uh, you know it's been a very interesting. Um, connection through the years. Um, my first uh, biathlon world championships was in Zakopane, Poland in 69. And we got a briefing from a State Department official before we went into Poland. And they said, you can expect to be embarrassed or compromised to put in some sort of a situation that's going to embarrass the United States. You can expect it. And we all thought that was a bit of an exaggeration, you know, that he was just trying to scare us. But the result, he, he was accurate. And, and in those days, in 1969, um, it definitely, we were definitely behind the Iron Curtain. And there was no, uh, no question about it. And, and yet, this sort of cocky, um, uh, you know, very uh, self-confident, uh, Soviet Alexander Tikhonov, um, he comes. They're, they're as you know, you remember. They're they're huge on pin trading. They've got all these little commemorative pins, and they they love to exchange them. And and so, you know, the first encounter I have with Tikhonov is we we might have been, I don't know if we were out, um, you know, at the venue someplace or we were. Uh, at, at some sort of a, maybe the cafeteria or, or someplace. And he comes over to me and he, he says, you change? And I, <laughs> I thought, what? 
<laughs> he says, you change. And he opens up his jacket and inside, inside of his jacket, it's just lined with all these little pins. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, yeah. Exchange. You want to exchange? Da, da, da. And he wants to see what I got. Well, the first mistake you make trading pins is put your hand in your pocket and bring your whole supply <laughs> of pins out. And you never do that. Because then they, and these the Soviets or Russians are really good at it. They'll, they'll take a finger and go through and they'll get the two or three best pins right away. And say, two for one, two for one. So anyway, we, we started, that's how the whole friendship started. And uh, at that time, we didn't, we didn't have a, really a suitable type of uh, carrying harness for our rifles. They were all mm. sort of cobbled together and makeshift. And, but the, the Russians had, had ones that were actually manufactured. And they were, they're not as sophisticated as the ones they have today, but they were far better than what we had. And we had just been given a, um, uh, our, one of our sponsors was uh, Scott from Sun Valley, and they had made aluminum ski poles, which at the time, uh, you know, before that, it was basically just bamboo. Yeah. And so these aluminum ski poles were, were a big advancement. So I, I think our next major connection was Chickenoff made it clear he really wanted some of those aluminum poles. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll trade you for one of your carrying harnesses. And as soon as that trade took place, everybody else on the US team wanted a Russian carrying harness. And um, so we were, we had these exchanges. And uh, then my, my uh, late wife, Mimi, who had a hat business and was making sort of uh, custom hats for many of the high schools in act in Alaska uh, with their you know either their logo or or the image of their mascot or whatever um, she made him a hat a red hat with the gold hammer and sickle and I can still remember it was just <laughs> it was really almost scary looking at it thinking whoa I mean that we really had the sense this was the enemy and I remember uh, she, she uh, was able to go to Sapporo as a spectator and she gave, there was a reception for all the biathletes and their families. And she gave that hat to him and it brought tears to his eyes. Mm. Here's this tough, cocky, you know, Soviet, uh, by that time, multiple world champion. And he, he had tears running down his cheeks when she gave him that hat. Yeah, huh. and, and then the next year, the, the world championships were in Lake Placid. And uh, at the end of the uh, world championships, I went to his hotel to just say goodbye. And uh, we, he didn't speak much English and I, I didn't speak Russian, but we both got, had a little bit of German. And he says, John, John, Klein problem. And he opens his suitcase. And I think, well, you know, what's the problem? And he says, look, look. And what he's telling me is he's still got room in his suitcase, but he doesn't have any money. And he wants to buy blue jeans and long play record albums, but he didn't have any money. So I opened up my wallet. I didn't have much, but I gave him everything I had. I just took all the dollars out of and he's in, in it really stopped him, you know, like, whoa, this, 
American guy's going to give me all the money he has in his wallet? And he's no, yet, yet, yet. He gives me five back. I think I gave him, you know, I don't know, 60, 70 bucks, something like that. It wasn't much. And he says, John, next year, Minsk. Minsk was the world championships in 74. No problem. No problem. And so I said, okay. Well, sure enough, at when we arrived in Minsk on a charter flight with the Norwegians and the Brits, there's this, uh, this film crew on the tarmac and uh, I come down the ramp off the airplane and there's Tikhanov giving me a big bear hug and they're filming it saying, yeah, here's Tikhanov's friend, the American Morton. And, and he took me in his car. Everybody else got on a bus and went to the hotel, but he took me in his car to this, this craft shop where they had all these beautiful Russian gifts, you know, the nesting dolls mm -hmm. and, carved plates and uh, beautiful <clears throat> woven scarves and things like that, samovars. John, how many on US team? I counted up, I think there were 12 of us, including the coaches. So he goes around, he says to all the, the ladies helping, 12 of these, 12 of these, 12 of these. You know, we basically filled his car with gifts for all the, <laughs> the whole team. So, I mean, that was, that was the start of the friendship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all the more remarkable at that time when uh, there be, they were behind the Iron Curtain and there was very little, uh, very little interaction between uh, between uh, across the, the Iron Curtain there. So uh, now, yeah. of course, it's a lot more open. But then I think that's really very remarkable. Yeah. Oh. At one point, we, he was driving me around Minsk in his <clears throat> in his car and uh He's got his uh, sunglasses hanging on the mirror. Uh, so I said, so, Alexander, you're, you're in the military, right? Soldier. No, no, no. Sold out and sold out. I said, well, what are you? Infantry? Yep, yep, yep. Polizai, polizai. And he takes his glasses, the sunglasses off, and puts them on and drops them down, looks at me, puts them back up. I said, oh, secret police. No, no, no. Secret, secret. So. <laughs> well, uh, we'll uh, for for those of you who are just uh, who are just joining, uh, you're listening to Outdoor Explorer uh, today. I'm speaking with John Morton, who's an Olympic biathlete, a coach, a trail builder, and an author. And his most recent book is called Celebrate Winter. My name's Adam Barrier, and we'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Outdoor Explorer, and I'm your host, Adam Barrier. Today, I'm speaking with John Morton. And uh, John, I'd like to switch gears here a little bit. You are a, uh, a trail builder, and this is something that uh, I've been hearing about for years from friends of mine like the Burke Holders, uh, Tom Corbin, other people who I know here in Anchorage. And they've, uh, I know that you're well known for your trail building, and you have a company that's called Morton Trails, and you go around and consult on, on trails. And Anchorage is a place that's known for its trails, both it's the coastal trail maybe is the most famous of all the paved trail that runs across town, but then our ski trails, of course, and, and then we have a lot of social trails up in the mountains in Chugach State Park, I think. It's one of the things that, that Anchorage is known for, and of course, and all of South Central Alaska really is known for our great trails. So I wanted to ask you, how did you primarily, you're involved in cross-country ski trails, although I think it's expanded from there. 
Um, but how did you get interested in trail building? You were, I think, the Dartmouth ski coach uh, until about 1989 when you started getting involved in trails and you and you stopped, uh, you, you, uh, that ended your tenure as the Dartmouth ski coach. Yep, that's correct. Um, I coached the, the Dartmouth ski team for 11 years and it was terrific. Uh, I had wonderful uh, athletes to work with, um, highly motivated, um, very conscientious, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. However, um, it, it was also a case of that I think the college, the administration, uh, I felt like I was out of step with uh, with the college. And uh, I'm sorry, is that that phone? No, I can me? I can hardly hear that phone. Okay. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you. <laughs> no. Okay. I can keep going. So, um, you know, I just, uh, I just felt like that uh, all of the things that were important to me, the outdoors, uh, winter sports, all of the historical um, traditional aspects that made Dartmouth different than the other Ivy league schools, the administration at the time um, not only wasn't emphasizing, they were trying to play them down. There was a time when, um, they were considering selling the Dartmouth Skiway, and Dartmouth is one of two colleges in the nation that own their own ski area, and uh, they were they were thinking about selling it, and it, it just was like, well, um, I it, maybe it's time to think about doing something else. And I I did have a couple of off, other offers to for coach coaching positions, but um, my wife and daughter didn't want to move from where we lived in um, the little town of Thetford, Vermont. So, you know, for a while I was uh, really kind of wrestling with what to do next. And uh, I was an interim program director for biathlon for a year or so and um, till they found uh, a permanent uh, program director. And uh, I, ultimately I just kind of lucked out and uh, I was asked to help out on a trail design project uh, by, actually my former boss at Dartmouth, Al Merrill, who, who had done some work out at Giants Ridge in Minnesota and uh, a couple of other places. And I thought, whoa, this is kind of neat. You know, and, and even though I didn't have any formal training in engineering or environmental science or anything like that, I did feel like I had pretty good experience on skiing trails all over the place, you know, in Europe and even in uh, Asia, Japan. And um, I felt like um, I had a reasonably good sense of what makes a good trail and what, you know, I, I could tell when something wasn't working well. And if a climb was too long or too consistent um, and you could, and if you ski enough, you, you just develop that, that, that sense. So, um, I, I took, you know, took the plunge and, and uh, I, I was very fortunate early on because I got hooked up with a couple of friends who were interested in making a proposal to a big charitable foundation in Portland, Maine to uh, reestablish Nordic skiing as a lifestyle in Aroostook County, which is the northernmost county in Maine. And so I got the job of designing the trails up there and I did about, uh, I think almost a dozen different trails out behind high schools and middle schools and elementary schools and and then two world-class competition venues one in 
Fort Canton, one in Presque Isle. And it was great because I, I didn't have to constantly scramble around trying to figure out where my next job was going to be because this one project involved a couple of years worth of, of jobs, even though it was a long commute from Thetford, Vermont. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. What, what makes a good trail, do you think? I mean, what do you look for? If, you, if you're looking at a piece of land and it's assuming it's got some hills in it and you can do whatever you want, what are you trying to do when you try to build a trail? Or what are you, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, it all depends on what the, the client or the, the owner or the, um, you know, what their objectives are. And I have a, a number of clients that are just private landowners and they just simply want to get out on their property. They want to enjoy their woods. They may have a couple of uh, natural features that they want to access. Maybe it's a pond, maybe it's a waterfall, maybe it's a hilltop with a potential view. But on the other extreme, I've done a number of um, competition venues. I did one in China a couple of years ago and, and they wanted um, a, a biathlon and cross country venue that would be a, a ideal training site for their teams as they were preparing for Beijing. And this would, would not be one of the facilities to be used at the Olympics, but it would be a training center for many of those athletes. Hmm. And that, that came out great. And it turns out that I think there are eight different uh, Chinese teams that were training at that facility. Okay. So, so it's a, it kind of depends what the, what the client, what their objectives are. And uh, it, obviously if it's a, a competition venue that's um, supposed to meet international standards, FIS homologation guidelines, that, that's more involved more more complex they have requirements in terms of locations and duration of the climbs and how many there are and you know total climb and all that yeah. and that is homologation I that's suppose. correct that's, yeah. yeah that, that uh, whole i don't know really the origin of the word but it basically means that the the, the practical application of it is if if athletes let's say from europe go out to central asia to race in the final World Cup of the season, they're not going to be surprised by having, you know, a one-kilometer climb right out of the start. Mm. So there are guidelines that, no matter where in the world uh, an FIS homologated trail is, you know that there are going to be certain. They're they're never identical, but they're going to be certain components that you can expect. Sort of a standardization yeah. of exactly. Of it, yeah. Do you, are there any, uh, you've built trails all over the world. You, I think that most of your projects have been uh, on the East Coast where you live in the Northeast, um, but yep. you've also been involved in trails, including uh, Mammoth Lakes in California. And I think I, I saw that you were involved in something in Scotland. You just uh, said that you were, met, you were involved in, uh, in China. And I think you've been involved in a project in South Korea. Do you have right. any, if you think about all the trails that you've seen, maybe not only your own trails, but other people's trails too, do you have a favorite trail? That you uh, that is that really stands out as a special trail. You know, you, you're gonna you think I'm gonna I'm trying to be uh, um, you know, show favoritism here, but I, <laughs> I wasn't joking when I said that Kincaid is the standard that I use, I, and I I have very high regard for Dick Mize and Jim Burkholder and um, uh, 
John John um, Elliott was involved in those too, and Jim Mahaffey. I'm sure there are other people that that have been involved um, and maybe early on, but I know that those four guys were instrumental in getting that project off the ground. And it, to me, it just um, has all of the components of what great cross country skiing and racing um, is about. I mean, that, it, that the climbs should be um, man, manageable, but, but challenging. I mean, ideally, the way you design the climbs is it for, for recreational skiers who aren't, um, you know, going at breakneck pace, they should be manageable and they shouldn't be so exhausting that the, their experience is, you know, less than favorable. But at the same time, um, if you're going to, as, as Anchorage has, if you're going to host a World Cup, you, they've got to be a good test for the world's best athletes. And this, this, I'm a big believer in the, the fact that the uh, descents should be technical and fun. That uh, I'm not a big fan of long, gradual, you know, gradients where you you frequently see in parts of the West where they use a lot of uh, forest service roads. Mm. And it's great that they have access to those roads and it makes good training and it's convenient and there's a lot to be said for, but uh, I'm more in favor of, of technical descents where the athletes have to be um, on their toes. They have to be, they, if they're good, they can make time on the descents. Um, they shouldn't be dangerous, but I'm, I'm okay with them being fast. Well, one trend that I've seen recently, and I, I read an article, I, I don't, it might've been even in the New York Times or something, uh, an article in which the author was uh, was was talking about the way that cross country ski racing trails have changed over the years. I think actually it was about snowmaking, and was saying yeah. that uh, with mod with uh, modern snowmaking, the course the trails are so hard uh, that when skiers fall, uh, it that usually it, it often has disastrous consequences. You get people getting injured and 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 that sort of thing. In alpine racing, they're looking for very a very firm snow surface, really a sheet of ice. They'll inject it with water, so it's super hard. But in cross-country skiing, we've also seen uh, uh, the cha trails change over the years. If you go back to the Lake Placid ski trails, for example, uh, they've all been wide. And in fact, there's a whole new venue there that, uh, that's correct, uh, as you know. But but even the old trails have been widened over the years. But back in 1980, they were fairly narrow. They were pretty twisty, and I think that one thing that has changed over the years uh, in the sport is that the downhills have become much faster, but the consequence, and, and you, you don't see crashes very often. I think a typical World Cup skier uh, could expect to get through an entire season without a crash, or if they do fall at one, during, the, during the winter, it may only happen once and hopefully not twice uh, because the, 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 tr the, the downhills are pretty high speed, but they're also pretty easy. I think in the old days, used to crash all the time. But yeah. instead of crashing going 40 miles an hour and breaking your ski and breaking both your poles and hopefully uh, not breaking a bone also, uh, back in the old days, I think you'd crash and you just get up and keep going and you'd be bummed that you just lost 10 seconds or 15 seconds, uh, but it didn't end your race and it didn't end your season. Uh, have you seen that also? Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, in fact, I, I was interviewed for that article and I've oh. since then. <laughs> 
and but but the point I was trying to make is I don't think it's fair to blame if 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 what the intention is is trying to say oh um, machine-made snow is making cross-country racing too dangerous. I, I don't think that's the, the correct approach of this. The sport all altogether has definitely become faster. And part of it is due to improved equipment. Certainly there's a component of um, waxing and, and um, uh, texture on the, on the bases of the skis, stone grinding and so forth. The grooming of the trails itself with the you know, big machinery um, has, has made it faster. So certainly machine-made snow is a component of it, no doubt about that. But I mean, it's just a case of, you could, you could make a similar um, analogy in a way, I guess, if you looked at some of these old traditional um, uh, Le Mans or, uh, or Grand Prix type race courses, um, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, like Watkins Glen or something like that. Hmm. And and if you were to take what maybe used to be, oh, uh, let's say a hundred horsepower engine on on some sports car and race it, and now you've got a 300 horsepower engine, you can understand why there might be more accidents because <laughs> right. you know the the speed has just been increased. But yeah. I don't think it's all the fault of machine-made snow. And my sense is that the advantages of machine-made snow, the, the durability, the reliability, the fact that athletes can know that if they go to certain, such and such a training center on the 1st of December or whatever the date may be, they can count on getting on snow and, and getting good training in. And, and the venues can count on being able to host an event. If, they, if they're always on the schedule for a big invitational event on the first weekend in February. It doesn't matter if they have a January thaw the week before, they, they're still going to be able to hold the race because that machine-made snow is so durable. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, and that's, that certainly has been a, a, a change over time. Um, well, we're, we're almost out of time. And I wanted to ask you about, we've got the Olympics coming, starting in Beijing uh, just, uh, just tomorrow, uh, actually. I mean, we're recording this a week in advance, but it's gonna, it begins the week after our show. Do you have any, after having been to 10 Olympics, do you have any comments about this, the Beijing Olympics? It's certainly gonna be unique and for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and uh, you know, the kind of thing that, that uh, I'll be looking for is I know that there's a, there's a lot of, um, I guess you'd say mixed feelings uh, toward toward the host country, and uh, and I just I wish that we could all kind of uh, put the politics aside and and enjoy the, the games. I I feel fairly confident that the people who are actually doing the work, hosting the games, the volunteers, or 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 people who are doing everything from grooming the trails to uh, putting out V boards, all of that stuff. They just simply want to have the best Olympic games for the athletes that, that they can you know, put together. And uh, I think it'll be interesting for the athletes because I, if I'm not mistaken, they were, they were not able to have any pre-Olympic races last year because of COVID. 
So for many of the athletes, if not most of them, this is going to be the first time they've really seen these courses. And that'll be something new and different because typically the year before the games, you have a World Cup or something on the Olympic course. So you get a chance to see it and, and uh, you know, figure out, you know, what the, your strategy is going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that's going to be all new to them this time around. Yeah, certainly everybody's going to go in there fresh. Uh, a, uh, uh, nobody's raced here before. And we, you, you just don't see World Cup races in, uh, in China very often. As some no. sports maybe more than others, uh, perhaps yeah. figure skating or perhaps uh, short track speed skating or some of these other sports may go to China much or, or more. But but in the, the sports that that you've been traditionally involved in, biathlon and cross country skiing, it doesn't happen very often. That's for sure. No, no you're you're exactly right. Yeah, and this will be the first. I mean, this is remarkable in a way. Just uh, a few years ago, Beijing hosted the Summer Games. Right. Never that's never happened before, and. I have no doubt that they're they're going to pull it off. They've they've got um, uh, plenty of snowmaking, and um, they're they certainly will make the commitment to um, make. They're not going to try to you know just get by on a shoestring. They're going to do whatever it takes to to try to create the best um, experience for the for the athletes and and the the media. They want they want positive press out of it for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to watching it. We've got uh, this this Olympics in particular. We've got skiers from right here in Alaska that have an opportunity to maybe even win medals in, in cross country skiing, and and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. And uh, yeah. well, Morty, we're about out of time. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. It's been fascinating. There are a whole bunch more things I wanted to talk about, and we didn't get a chance. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Outdoor Explorer. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. Well, my name's Adam Barrier, and I'll see you outdoors. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.